Good morning. Hope you are doing well. Good to see everyone. If you have your Bible, if you would go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 5. We'll be in verses 16 through 25 again this morning. As you turn there, I hope you've you've heard and understood the things that we've been saying this morning about the Reformation and why and how it happened, because it's going to tie into a lot of actually what we're going to speak of this morning um, in, in dealing with any kind of religion or thought that points to salvation by works and not salvation by grace through Christ and through the gospel. So this, this morning, I hope you've, hope you've heard those things. And, and by the way, if you were if you were good cheaters, when Pastor Jimmy this morning asked about the five solas, you could have turned to page 11 in your worship guide in the children's section, and you could have read those right off of there. Three Galatians 5, beginning of verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by or keep in step with the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning as we turn our attention to the preaching of your word, and God, would you work in our minds and in our hearts this morning to um, reveal the truth about who you are from your word? Father, would you um, speak to us this morning? Not that we are looking for you to speak in some new way, but we are looking for you to speak to us in our hearts by your Spirit. And as we read and study the things that you have left us in your Word, Father, reveal yourself to us as we learn more about Christ. Pray that our time this morning would be uh, edifying, would be for the building up of the body, and ultimately would be uh, for your glory. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, How many of you ever heard the term, cultural term, moralistic therapeutic deism? One, two, three. Okay. 
Um, well, the, could shorten it up to MTD, and I probably will because that's a mouthful, but moralistic, the, uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. Back in the early to mid-2000s, there was a sociologist named Christian Smith and um, Melina Lundquist-Denton, and they, they coined this term in their book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. Uh, they interviewed and researched about 3,000 teenagers um, seeking to identify what their pr predominant beliefs were. And some of these were believers, they claimed to be Christians. And here's the five conclusions that they came to about the beliefs of these teenagers. First, they believed that there is a God who exists, who created and ordered the world, um, yet he merely watches over human life on earth. The second conclusion is that this God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other, as is taught in the Bible and by most world religions. And the third belief that they concluded was that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. The fourth truth is that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And then the fifth conclusion that they came to as they studied the beliefs of these teenagers was that good people go to heaven when they die. Uh, they call it moralistic therapeutic deism because uh, moralistically it, it places a high value on being good, okay? Um, and in fact, it would reward good people for, reward people to go to heaven because they were good. Um, but God's, God's standard for good isn't the standard for good that these teenagers were thinking through. Uh, no, their good was defined by popular culture rather than the moral imperatives of Scripture. And because of that, if, if you were to tolerate okay, um, behaviors that the Bible calls sin, um, they might actually see that as good, while you actually calling sin sin would be viewed as hateful or intolerant or bad. Uh, so there's a twisted sense of, of a subjective moralism there. Uh, they call it therapeutic because, in their view, the primary goal and measure of value in life is that we're to feel good about oneself. Um, and further, that God's job is simply to be there to take care of us when we need him to. And then the authors, they use the word deism, and, and honestly, theism is probably the better word to use here, but because they viewed God as the creator, but relatively as one who is uninvolved um, in our daily lives and in the lives of the world, um, but that he can and does intervene from time to time when he, when he needs to. Uh, what's interesting is this research indicates just how far removed from biblical truth many people are today. And I would argue that this isn't relegated to young people. I would say that there are many people, young and old, that are removed from biblical truth. Um, in fact, the teenagers that they interviewed in the early 2000s are now the 30-somethings in this world and are likely still holding to those same thoughts and beliefs. Um, they view God as a, as a cosmic therapist of sorts, as their divine butler, or as a roadside mechanic. Kind of their thought is this. You don't know him, but you don't need to know him. But take heart, he's on call, he's always on duty, and you can call him when you have a problem or when you're broken down, and he'll come and he'll take care of your problem, and he'll help you feel better about yourself, and all the while, he won't become too personally involved in your life. Um, the belief here of MTD is that the most important thing for a good and happy life is for a person to be good, to be nice, 
to be kind and pleasant and respectful and tolerant and responsible and self-improving and, and physically healthy and chasing and seeking success. And they believe that if you do these things well, then God is ultimately going to receive you into heaven. Sadly, this worldview is, is held by many today. It was then and it still is today. Um, and it's one of those worldviews that intentionally emphasizes horizontal relationships over and above uh, the vertical relationship with God. In short, I would say this, uh, moralistic therapeutic deism puts God on the sidelines and puts humanity, ultimately each individual, at the center of his or her own belief system. Now sadly, this is the kind of worldview that um, has and continues to infiltrate our churches today. Um, Pastor Jimmy just made the mention in our intercession that there will be churches today that gather and much of what they do will not be connected to the gospel, will not be connected to salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone, by scripture alone, for God's glory alone. It'll be connected to be nice, be good, be relevant, be tolerant. If you do these things well, God will receive you and your life will be full. Listen to this remarkable assessment from the book. I'll read it directly from, this was part of their conclusion. A significant part of Christianity in the United States is not Christian in any sense that it is seriously connected to the actual history um, of Christian tradition, but is rather substantially morphed into Christianity's misbegotten step-cousin, Christian moralistic therapeutic deism. The distortion, this distortion of Christianity has taken root not only in the minds of individuals, but also within the structures of Christian organizations, institutions, and churches. And how can we tell? Well, the language, and therefore the experience of Trinity, holiness, sin, grace, justification, sanctification, church, heaven and hell, appear to be supplanted by the language of happiness, niceness and an earned heavenly reward. This radical transformation of Christian theology and Christian belief replaces the sovereignty of God with the sovereignty of the self. In this therapeutic age, human problems are reduced to pathologies in need of a treatment plan. Sin is simply excluded from the picture, and doctrines as central as the wrath and justice of God are discarded as out of step with the times and unhelpful to the project of self actualization. Did you pick up any parallels to expressive individualism in there? Thinking back to our, our Sunday night study. I think that's why it's so important that, that we spend some time today, as we already have, considering the Reformation. Because the aim of the Reformation was to point people away from looking to themselves for salvation, looking to their works for salvation, and here we see in MTD that this is prevalent in today's society and even in our churches. So why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing it up to help us better understand why we as your pastors here at OVC have spent so much time, um, whatever word you want to use here, rooting, grounding, founding, tying back to, anchoring, everything that we do and think and say to the gospel. Um, because we know that we can't lose sight of it. We need to hear it constantly. We need to know it sufficiently. Um, there is nothing 
in your life as an individual believer that you need to be disconnected or, or that you need to disconnect from the biblical gospel. Um, because if you disconnect a part of your life from the biblical gospel, some other kind of worldview will naturally slip in and will take over. And that's precisely why Pastor Jimmy has spent the last four weeks um, grounding these virtues that we're going to begin looking at today in the fact that we have them because we are in the Spirit, because God has indwelled us and saved us. Um, that's the only way that we can keep in step with the Spirit. Um, what we're saying is this. We didn't, and we, we don't want to, uh, our time in Galatians 5, these nine weeks, to become nothing more than moralistic teachings about um, ways that you should do this or, or not do that. Um, if we'd have done that, we would if that would have been our aim, we'd have been no different than those um, who hold to the moralistic view of, of MTD that we just looked at. So uh, instead, we have begun with looking at the objective reality that we have the fruit of the Spirit if and only if God dwells in you. If and only if you are resting and trusting in Christ, um, you have the fruit of the Spirit. Um, if you look at the text today, it begins and ends with that. In verse 16, we're told to walk by the Spirit. And then it ends in verse 25, to, to live in the Spirit and to keep in step with the Spirit. In fact, just in these few verses, we're told to walk by, be led by, live by, and keep in step with the Spirit of God. Ephesians 5.18 points us to the fact that we are to be filled with the Spirit. Romans 8.4 tells us we are to walk according to the Spirit. Uh, what's the point? Um, if we are children of God, then we are indwelled by His Holy Spirit. Um, we've been graciously given His fruit, um, and we should be seeking to walk and live and move and breathe and think and act in a way that is according to His Spirit, not according to our flesh. With that said, remember that we are being sanctified. We've not been glorified yet. Um, that kind of points back to the fact that the flesh and the spirit are at war within us from verse 17. We see there, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you want to do. And that's the continued conflict that Pastor Jimmy spoke of. Some of you may be wondering, well, how do I know if I'm walking according to the flesh? Or if I'm walking according to the spirit? Well, Paul gives us a pretty good guide here. Uh, he says, now the works of the flesh are what? Evident. Okay, how do you know you're walking by the flesh? Um, there they are. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These are the deeds and the behaviors that ultimately mark the life of an unbeliever. The one that Paul says here will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I want to say this too. Um, yes, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. There, there, is a, there is an eternal ruin that will take place, but there's also an earthly ruin for you. Um, young people, hear me out here especially, um, but we all need to be reminded of this. Um, we just came out of a four-week cultural series on Sunday afternoons uh, dealing with some serious issues in our culture that are prevalent. Um, it, we dealt with God creating man and woman in his image and what that means for a person's worth and value and purpose. And then we dealt with the, the distinctive roles of male and female in the society, the home, and the church. We looked at expressive individualism. 
Uh, we dealt with gender identities and um, sexual e ethics. And kind of in light of those cultural issues, go back and look at verses 19 through 21 and notice how all of these cultural issues that we looked at, they're tied to this list of the deeds of the flesh. Think about the sexual revolution and, and the gender confusion. Um, look there in verses 19 through 21. Those who are caught up in that are filled with the deeds of the flesh, sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality and, and orgies. As we look at expressive individualism and, and gender roles, um, those caught up in those areas, they are plagued by the works of, and the behaviors of the flesh. Um, idolatry, drunkenness, enmity, strife, jealousies, um, especially as you think about gender roles, um, think about the rivalries and dissensions and distinctive and divisions and the envy that takes place um, as man and woman are uh, confused the roles that God has clearly laid out that, that Booney helped us understand um, in our last study. But young people, everything in our society today is pointing to these things and saying, yes. Do these things. Be these things. They're Good for you. You'll find satisfaction in them. Uh, books, movies, music, TV, educational programs, educational institutions, social media, and sadly even churches today are pointing to these things as being virtuous rather than being the deeds of the flesh. Uh, don't believe the lie. Understand that what flows out of expressive individualism, the things that flow out of the sexual revolution, the things that flow out of egalitarianism is nothing more than deeds of the flesh. They're the deeds that are characteristic of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so our society and our politics and our culture today are pushing a narrative that, that will ultimately lead you to eternal ruin, but also to earthly ruin here and now. The lie is that you'll find pleasure in these things, that you'll find satisfaction, that it will, that will fulfill your longing. But the truth is they won't. You won't find those things in them. Um, it was said a moment ago that God's been good to us in the way that he's loved this country, and yet it's kind of driven us to worship the, creature, the creature over the creator. Um, listen, there is no creature. There is no created thing that should and could take, uh, rightly take the place of the creator God. You'll find, a, you'll find a sense of happiness there. You'll find a sense of fulfillment there in those temporal things, but it'll be a false sense. And it's only going to be for a short season. But the truth is these things will, they're eventually going to bring you to complete ruin here on earth and eternally. There's no hope in them. But believers here this morning, we're going to struggle with these things as well. That's the continued conflict in the Christian life. Um, there are things in our flesh that in our nature we desire to do, yet the Spirit of God is working in us to help us war against them. And Paul here contrasts the deeds of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. Um, what are they? Well, let's look there in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So as Christians, we are dwelled by the Holy Spirit and we are 
given these virtues or these attitudes, uh, and they are reflected and displayed in our lives. They should be. They're the fruit of the Spirit. They are the, they're the proof that we are a believer. They're the evidence that we are indwelled by the Spirit. They are not the means by which we gain the Spirit or by which we become a believer. They're, they're given to us. They're proof and evidence. So the remedy here that, we, that we're given to, to battle and to war in this conflict is that we're to yield our control to the Holy Spirit, to the one who lives with you, within you. We're, we're called, called to walk with him, called to be led by him. We're called to live by him, to be filled by him, to keep in step with him. And then as that happens in the life of a believer, you'll begin to see um, the continued growth through the continued grace that Pastor Jimmy spoke of in, um, in weeks two and three. And um, that continued growth is what we would call sanctification. I'd define sanctification maybe as this. Is it is the continued grace of God working in us and through us to battle the deeds of the flesh and yield control of our lives to the Spirit of God in us to produce His fruit for His glory and for the good of others. Um, so He's working in us to sanctify us. MacArthur puts it this way. It's pretty plain and simple, um, but it makes perfect sense. He said the whole idea of sanctification is the decreasing frequency of the list in verses 19 to 21 and the increasing frequency of the list in verses 22 to 23. Pretty good, isn't it? Pretty simple. Uh, As we move forward this morning and and over the next uh, four weeks after this week, we're going to begin to look specifically at the fruit of the Spirit. And I want to make a couple of distinctions here as well, and, and Jimmy helped us with some of these last week, but uh, it's worth noting that this, the list here, there's nine things. It's not an exhaustive list. Um, verse 19, it ends with, and things like these. And verse 23 ends with, against such things. So there are other things. This list isn't exhaustive, but it is. I was sitting around with Pastor Booney on the front porch. We were talking through some things last night, and he made the point that it is a bare minimum of things, though. It is a very important list of minimum virtues that should exist and be displayed in the life of a believer. But they're not a ranking. Uh, None of the sinful behaviors that are listed there in verses 19 through 21 are more or less sinful than than another, though there may be um, earthly consequences that are greater greater or harsher in one than the other. Uh, the, The fruitful virtues here, it's not, a, it's not a list of nine linear virtues that we are to kind of work through and check off systematically and go one by one. No, it is a, it's a package deal. They're not to be picked and chosen from. But with that said, we could make a pretty good case why Paul begins here with love, and we're going to look more at that a little bit later. But uh, that's why you see the, the word here. Look there again in, in, in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Notice it's singular there, not plural. But if you look back at the deeds of the flesh, you'll notice there in verse 19, now the works or the deeds of the flesh, there it is plural. Um, You know, the deeds here, they are a list to pick and choose from, so to speak. Um, Those who are walking by the flesh, they can kind of pick one of those. I'm going to be one of these one day, I'm going to do one of these the next day, and so on and so forth. Um, and in an unbeliever, we need, we need to understand they're not going to be all of those things at all times. And that's a testament to God's grace 
His common grace working in their life to restrain the depths of their sinful nature. Um, in fact, there are many people who will never do some of those things listed in that list. Again, talking with Mooney last night, it was reminded of uh, Robert Murray McShane's comment um, to make sure we don't get too prideful to say, oh, I didn't commit that one, and I didn't commit that one. Okay, while you did not commit maybe some of those, um, Robert Murray McShane reminds us that the seed of every one of those sins um, known to man is in my heart. So the propensity for us to do it is there, though we may not act on it. But by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is singular. And again, the point is this. Those nine virtues that we have listed there, they are to be evident and on display in the life of a believer at all times and in all situations. Now, some may show up more than others in some situations, but they're to be there and exist in all of them. Uh, We don't pick joy today and then pick love tomorrow and decide that the next day we're going to be kind and and then, you know, I'll be gentle next week. No, um, you know, we don't display patience when it's convenient for us. That's me preaching to myself. Um, we don't exercise self-control only when somebody is watching. No, all of these things should be evident in the life of every believer. And this goes back to what Pastor Jimmy helped us understand last week, um, that the fruit of the Spirit, okay, in its fullness is the manifestation Uh, of the character and nature of the triune God through an intense display of his communicable attributes in his people as he dwells in them by his spirit. Hear that again. The fruit of the spirit in its fullness is the manifestation of the character and nature of the triune God through an intense display of his communicable attributes in his people uh, as he dwells in them by his spirit. They all flow from God. They come from him. Um, And it's not that he merely gives them to us or displays them. No, he is all of these things. They flow from his very being. We would say that God is love, that he is joy, that God is peace, he is patience, he is kindness, he is goodness, he is faithfulness, he is gentleness, he is self-control. He is all of these things and and so much more that we can't even fathom. And he's all of these things all of the time. So therefore, we can rightly conclude that we, as believers, having the Spirit of God within us, that we would also display all of these God-given virtues, not just some of them, at all times, not only when it's convenient or necessary, though we know that they will be displayed in us imperfectly because we are not infinite beings. We are not holy. And we would also rightly conclude that the fruit of the Spirit described here is it's a package deal of attitudes and virtues rather than standalone works or deeds and behaviors that we can pick from. And I want to demonstrate what I mean here. Uh, how many of you in here have, have ever acted in a way, you've ever acted in kindness or love and patience while not having an attitude of kindness or love or patience. Anybody ever been there? Um, how many of you ever said, I'm going to kill him with kindness? What's generally the background attitude behind that? The furthest thing from kindness. No, we, we literally mean, I hope that the, the coals I heap on their head burns through and kills them. Uh, that, and that's furthest, the furthest thing from what God is 
trying to get at there with helping us understand that we are to be kind. The point is we're, we're to reserve judgment for him and we're to love them with his kind of love um, and allow him to, to judge them rightly. But uh, anyways, our, our, our actions in that may display his kindness, but the underlying attitude is the furthest thing from it. In reality, we would, we'd have to agree that the, even our kindest actions would not be acceptable if our attitude lying underneath it weren't acceptable, right? Um, because an, ad, an action without the accompanying attitude is hypocrisy and legalism and a lie. Uh, how many of you have had, I mean, uh, all of you that have children have experienced this, but like, you tell a child to go do something, okay? And they go do it, but they're stomping mad as they go and do it, right? Their action is right, but their underlying heart in it is not um, so we've, we've seen that. We understand what that um, means. That the attitude must precede the act, or uh, in the context of this morning, the fruit must precede the fruits. You won't produce the fruits of love apart from the fruit of God's love indwelling you. Uh, you won't produce the fruits of gentleness apart from the fruit of God's gentleness dwelling in you, and so on and so forth for the other seven virtues listed here. And with that as our kind of foundation for today, we'll, we'll begin looking at a specific attitude or virtue that should be displayed in us intensely uh, as we keep in step with the Spirit. And the first one listed here is love. And that in the Greek is the word agape. Uh, we could make the case from Scripture that love is listed first here for a reason. Okay? It's not that love carries more weight than any of the others, but it is that all of the others are bound up with love. And Spurgeon puts it this way, um, and it's so true. He said, perhaps love is put first not only because it is a right royal virtue, nearest akin to the divine perfection, but it's put first because it is a comprehensive grace and contains all the rest. All the commandments are fulfilled in one word, and that word is love. And all the fruit of the Spirit is contained in that one most sweet, most blessed, most heavenly, and most godlike grace love. Paul confirms this as well in 1 Corinthians 13. If you go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, if you would, we're going to look at a few things from there. 1 Corinthians 13. In there, Paul goes through a list of, of things, and then he, he says at the end of this list that if he doesn't have love, then all of these things are rendered as meaningless. I can speak all the language, but have not love, they're meaningless. If I can prophesy and have not love, meaningless. And he says that love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. And then he concludes with the statement at the end, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest is what? Love. So it's no surprise that here in Galatians 5, Paul starts with love, so that's where we're going to begin too. Um, first, we can affirm we can affirm that God has given himself and therefore his love to his people. And he's, he's done that by indwelling them with his spirit. And so if this love proceeds from God, if it comes to his people from God, we might also rightly ask, why would God give his people the virtue of his love? Why would he impart the fruit of love to us as believers? Well, to put it simply, he imparts his love to us, his children, as believers, for his glory and for the good of his people. 
Okay? I want you to hear it again, but I'm going to put it in a different way. He loves his people for the sake of his glory. He acts in love to glorify himself. And I'll say it again in a way that might be a little shocking at first. Uh, God loves himself above all things. He is concerned about his glory above all things. Um, to to kind of steal from a catechism, the chief end of God is to glorify himself and enjoy himself forever. And we see that in the triune relationship. Have you ever thought about God's love in that way? We don't like to think of it that way, so you probably haven't, because generally what do we know about people who love in this way? We don't like them. We don't like people that are enamored with themselves. We don't like people that only love themselves. I have history dealing with some of those. Um, we want to get away from them. We don't make much time in our life for them, and, and typically those kinds of people are very unloving to others. So therefore, we, we're hesitant to think of God or to speak of God in this way, because from a human perspective, this is the kind of behavior and the kind of view of self that we would see as wrong and evil, and, and deep down, we know that there is nothing evil about God. There's nothing wrong about him. But it doesn't mean that the, this way that he loves himself isn't true. It just means that it's a kind of love that is otherworldly. It's a kind of love that we can't fully grasp. Um, it's a kind of love that we, as far as human relationships go, we know nothing of. So here's a question I would ask you, though, that hopefully this will help you kind of start wrapping your mind around it and make sense of it. Um, if God isn't to love himself above all things, then who is he to love primarily? Because if he was to love anything else above himself, what would he be saying about himself? That he's not transcendent, that he's not holy, that he is not the one true God. So therefore, the answer is no one. He wouldn't love anyone above himself. We sang that this morning. If you have your worship guide, flip over there to page three. Excuse me, page four. Page four, we sung, Hallelujah, glory be to who? To our great God. Flip over on page five. Look at the refrain that we sung over and over and over again. Gloria, Gloria, glory to God alone. We sung it in the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him. Praise Him. Praise Him. He says it in His Word. Isaiah 42, 8. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And six chapters later in chapter 48, Verse 11, he says, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. You know, God's love for himself is a, it's a profound truth. It's a hard one to think of and wrap our minds around. Yet sadly, many see this and, and they are skeptical of it. And what happens is when we fail to grasp this profound truth about God and his love for himself. Um, that's how people get to 
the beliefs of moralistic therapeutic deism. That's how people get to where they are looking to themselves for salvation because generation after generation um, evangelicals have and will continue to grow up picturing themselves at the center of God's universe. And I would say they probably really picture themselves at the center of their own universe. But the truth is this, God is at the center of God's universe, and him and him alone. So does that mean that God can, if he loves himself supremely, can he still be for us? Can he still love us? And the answer is absolutely. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm kind of arguing that he must be for himself is if he's to be for us. He must supremely love himself if he is to love us. If he was to abandon the goal of his own self-exaltation, we'd be the ones who would lose out. Because his aim, of, his aim of bringing praise and glory to himself and bringing joy to his people, they're one aim. They stand and fall together. You can't separate them. And then I'd ask you this question. What is it that God could give to his people that would be for their most good and that would show him as being most loving? I'll ask it again. What could God give to his people that would be for their highest good and that would show him as most loving? There's only one answer. Himself. If God would give us that which is best for us and most satisfying to us, that is, if he was to love us perfectly, he would offer us no less than himself. And he, he is after us. He is over us to give us what is best. That's not prestige. That's not wealth. That's not success. That's not health. It is full-blown fellowship with him. And I want to clarify that before we move on. God is the only one being in the entire universe for whom self-centeredness or the pursuit of his own glory is the ultimate loving act. Can't be true in, our, in and of ourselves. He's the only one by which that can be true. Um, for him, self-exaltation is the highest virtue. Um, when he does all things and when he acts for the praise of his glory, he is preserving for us in offering to us the only thing in the entire world that can satisfy all of our longings, and that is himself. Yes, he is for us, and therefore he has been and is now and always be, will be first and foremost for himself. I want to ask you to, over the next days and weeks, to seriously consider that truth. Um, I remember the first time I heard it, it kind of hit me across the head like a two-by-four. It's a hard truth to consider. Um, yet I do kind of want to set things up for next week. The, the reality of this truth is the key to you knowing joy and knowing peace. Uh, we'll take the remaining time that we have this morning and we'll seek to define love. We'll define the agape love of God. And this is where I want to kind of borrow Jimmy's concepts from a couple weeks ago, subjective and objective um, you know, we live in a society that defines and views love in many different ways, uh, most of which are all subjective in nature. Um, think about some of the types of love that our culture looks to. They look to self-love, uh, playful love, feeling-based love. They look to 
um, sexual desire, obsessive love. And different people in our culture would argue that one of those types of love is to be elevated above the other. One would say it would be this type of love. One would say it would be um, self-love would be the highest form. Another would say that feelings-based love is the highest form of love. Some would say that sexual desire and obsession are the highest form of love uh, in our society. But Scripture, however, points us in a very different direction. It ultimately points us to the objective love of the triune God. In Scripture, we see many types of love listed. We see uh, the sacrificial agape love. We see familial love. We see friendship love. And we see even a love that is rightly driven from passion. But all throughout God's Word, we are, we're pointed to the fact that intentional, willful, uh, self-sacrificing love, agape love, is the highest form of love. And it's the highest form of love because it is the kind of love that is most characteristic of God. So let's define it objectively from his word. Go back to 1 Corinthians 13. I did think this was interesting. And it goes back to what Spurgeon had in mind, I think, is that Paul, essentially here, he's using the other eight virtues after love to define love. And I think that's what Spurgeon meant when he said that love is a comprehensive grace and it contains all the rest. Um, Look there in 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Paul says love is, so he's defining it. Love is patient. Okay, connect that back to the patience in Galatians 5. Love is kind. Connect that back to kindness in Galatians 5. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Tie that back to self-control in Galatians 5 does not insist on its own way, gentleness. It is not irritable or resentful. It's peaceful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love is full of joy and goodness. And in verse 8, love never ends. It's faithful. In both of these texts here in 1 Corinthians 13 and Galatians 5, the word Translated as love, every time is the Greek word agape. And we, we, kind of, we defined it a few weeks ago in our identity series, but we'll, we'll define it again. Agape, love, is a pure, willful, selfless, sacrificial love that intentionally and joyfully desires another's highest good. This kind of love is an outpouring of the fruit of the Spirit, and it is an outworking of faith. In other words, where there is true faith where there is the indwelling of the Spirit, where there is the fruit of the Spirit, okay, there will be agape love displayed. And that's why Paul can say in Galatians 5, 6, um, you can turn back in Galatians to there. In Galatians 5, 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And here in verse 22, it's not the first or the last time that Paul uses agape in chapter 5. And I think it's important to make a distinction here that our text in Galatians 5, verses 16 through 25, it's sandwiched in between two texts that are dealing with relationships. They're dealing with the relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ within the church and how we are to deal with one another. Um, Galatians 5 uh, goes... Go up to verse 13 there. It says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. 
Again, speaking to believers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, and that's agape, it's the attitude there, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love, and the word there is agapau, an action there, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Go down to verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. What's the significance here? Well, we're not going to be able to rightly serve one another. We're not going to be able to rightly love our neighbor as ourselves apart from the indwelling of the Spirit, apart from the fruit of the Spirit in us being displayed in us and through us. Um, Apart from the fruit received from God, we'll bite and devour one another. We'll provoke one another. We'll serve our flesh. We'll become conceited. We'll envy one another. And we'll fail to bear one another's burdens by either allowing a brother to remain in his sin or provoking him in his sin rather than restoring him in gentleness. And the command here for every believer um, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And in this context, it is specifically about loving the, the neighbors that are our brothers and sisters in Christ, other believers in the church. The point is that we are to have an attitude of agape love toward all believers at all times. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to um, the two teachings from our identity series where we dealt with loving others sacrificially. Um, I think you taught that one. Was it the first one? I taught it the second one. Go back and listen to those. Um, But be reminded from God's word the commands that we have to love one another. John 13, 34, and 35. It says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Colossians 3, uh, beginning in verse 12, says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, uh, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 1 John 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves God has been born of God and knows God. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 21, This commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So we're commanded to love. But why is it important that this kind of objective agape love is displayed in us as believers and not some other kind of love that could be attributed back to the world? It's because that we as believers, we bear witness and testimony about the one that we claim to have living within us. If we love rightly, we're displaying what God's love really is. But if we say we are a believer and we love wrongly, then we're 
we're in effect teaching others wrongly about who God is and about his love. Um, notice the contrasting testimonies here between those who are loving in the flesh and those who are loving in the fruit of the Spirit. Um, 1 John 2 says, whoever, verse 9, uh, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going um, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Um, notice the contrasting testimony in the next chapter, in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. In verse 14, we, we know that we have passed out of life into death. Okay, another way you could say that is we know that we have the fruit of the Spirit dwelling in us, is that we should love one another because we love our brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, um, whom he has not seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen, or who he has seen, cannot see. So again, we see the contrasting testimonies of those who are seeking to love in the flesh versus love in the fruit of the Spirit. How are we to love? And we'll conclude here. Um, how are we to love our brothers and sisters in Christ? How are we to love the church? How are we to rightly display the agape love of God? 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John 4, 9, and 10. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In Ephesians 2, Paul tells us to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then be reminded from Romans 5, 6 through 8, that while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the godly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. So we're to love our brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that is sacrificial to the point of laying down our physical lives if necessary. And God, we can say this because God's loved us in this way. And it's his love that is in us. And therefore, that is the kind of love that should be displayed by us. Um, we are to love sacrificially, um, even to the point of laying down our physical lives. The point is this. God has loved us by giving himself up for us in Christ. 
and he has loved us by giving himself to us by his spirit. And then just as a reminder in closing, why does God love his people? That they would know his love, which is the best thing for them, and that they would in return love him, enjoy him, and glorify him. And I want to close by reading um, John 17. Turn there in your Bible. John 17, beginning in verse 20. Jesus is praying to the Father here. And he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. So that the world may know his glory. So that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. And I love verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Pray with me. Father, this morning we, God, we praise you as we see that you have given your glory to your Son and that in that your love is poured out within our hearts through your Spirit whom you gave us. And God, in this, the world comes to know Christ. They come to know that he was sent, that he has loved us as the Father has loved him. And God, it's such a sweet reminder this morning from your word that your son is continuing to make you known to us so that the love with which you have loved him will be in us and that he will be in us. God, there is no greater source of joy and of peace than to know that the love of God, your love, in and through Christ, is in us. There is no greater source of joy and peace than to know that you have given yourself to us by your Spirit. And you have done this for our good. And you have done this for your glory. God, as we seek to honor you and seek to walk in a way that is in accordance with your spirit, in a way that rightly shows and manifests and displays and reflects and mirrors your agape love, would you work in us by your spirit that we may 
keep in step with him. Father, glorify yourself. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.